Can I just say before I start, on behalf of Ruth, and I'm going to bring in Roland and Elaine here, how grateful we are for your prayers. I remember being in Dallas when Brad graduated, and at that time, Roche was not all that well, and I remember Roche saying to me that Brad was her rock. Well, recently, I heard Brad use the same words, Roche is my rock. So God has a way of working two things together. And the word that we sang before is a staggering statement. Whatever comes my way, I will trust you. I remember reading a story many years ago. It doesn't pay to spill water on your notes. <laughs> Whatever comes my way, I will trust you. I remember reading a story years ago in the days when Lenin ruled Russia. And... Um, out somewhere in that great land, there was a group of frightened Christians meeting together in a private home. The door was thrown open one day and two Russian soldiers marched in with their guns and proceeded to load them. And they said to the assembled group, if any of you want to recant your Christianity, you can do so now and walk out the door. Some walked out. I don't know how many. They then put down their guns, took off their tunics and said, shall the rest of us worship together? I wonder how they felt. I wonder how fearful they were. And I wonder what is your greatest fear today? It's not next weekend when we face England. <laughs> what are you saying, <laughs> Whatever comes my way. I will trust him. But what is your greatest fear? I recently decided to Google. Google is a wonderful thing. What is the greatest fear in people today? Now, a university which I've never heard of called Richmond decided to undertake its annual fear survey. I don't know how many people... That, I, I never get called on to do these surveys, do you people? <laughs> Who do you want for Prime Minister? I've, I've been, never been asked, but... What is your greatest fear? And they surveyed some people, and this is the 2017 result. And they graded them from 1 to 50. What was the first and most potent fear that people faced, according to Chapman University, in 2017? Any guesses? I was going to bring along a $10 note and put it here and bet you couldn't guess it. Pardon? No, not death. No. Spiders, no. Let, let me tell you. Let me, you, won't, you won't get there. I like it. You can come up and get the supposed $10 afterwards. Now, I used to work for the NN Revenue Department, so I don't like this. Corrupt government officials was number one. And 74% of people who were surveyed, were fearful of corrupt government officials. I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to pick out one or two at random. Pollution of our oceans, rivers and lakes. Not having enough money for the future. Economical or financial collapse. Terrorist attacks. Credit card fraud. This is strange. Well, coming from America, it's not. Government restrictions on firearms and ammunition. That's number 23 out of 50. Or 
oil spills, heights, now I can sympathise with that one, random mass shootings, I understand that one, and number 48 of 50 is the fear of dying. 48 out of 50. What I take from that is that from 40, I don't know what 50 is, I couldn't fit it on the page, <laughs> but from 47 to 1, I would put together as the fear of living. Living in a world which is just getting worse and worse as each day goes by. We live in a shocking, sick world. And we have our living hope. Whatever comes my way, I will trust him. We're going to read this morning from a few verses in John's Gospel, proceeding through our series of being transformed. And we're speaking about a guy who had to confront a man that I believe he was fearful of. Let's turn to John chapter 20, John chapter 19. John 19, we read these words. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 34 kilograms, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been before. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I often look at the Bible as a very skeletal record. What I mean is that it doesn't often fill out parts of the story I'd like to know about. And one of them was the time when an old, old man walked away westward. He was walking towards the upthrust hills that preceded a mountain climb. He was 120 years of age. Believe it or not, that's more than I am. He turned and waved goodbye to his protege called Joshua. And Moses climbed Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is 3,600 metres or near 9,000 or 10,000 feet. He got to the top and looked out over the plains of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the promised land. God said, Moses, take a last look, you won't be going. And there he died. And the Bible records that God buried him. I have this crazy image of God with a shovel. How did God do that? That's what I say, it's skeletal. The Bible doesn't give you every detail. But Moses was buried. The only person there was God himself. And Moses had finished his life's work. I wonder how Joshua felt as he then had to take up the reins of leading one to two million people out of the sand and into a land flowing with milk and honey. And Jehovah then spoke to Joshua and said these words, I'm about, no, now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. 
I will give to you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will be extended from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great seas on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life, and as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to obey all that the law my servant Moses gave you. I wonder, I wonder if that was a very comforting message for Joshua. I would have thought so. Be very courageous, Joshua. I know Moses is gone. I know he was your idol. I know you looked up to him, but he's gone. His time is over. Now you step up to the plate. Two words. Be courageous, but be careful. Be careful to obey all the commands that I have given you. I read this little statement the other day. Scared is what you're feeling. Brave is what you're doing. Scared is what you're feeling. Brave is what you're doing. Julius Caesar conquered the world, but he was terrified of thunder. Peter the Great of Russia cried like a child whenever he had to cross a bridge. The celebrated British writer, Dr. Samuel Johnson, would never enter a room unless he put his left foot first. And if he made a mistake, he'd come back out and go back in with his left foot leading. Fear breeds inaction. Inaction breeds a lack of experience. A lack of experience breeds ignorance. And ignorance breeds fear. And so you start with fear, you end with fear. And the scripture is, is absolutely replete or thick with promises of God's presence as we enter a very, very sick world. Paul caught the mood, and if you ever do so, you want to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It starts out like this. In the last days there will be perilous times. And then there are 19 descriptions of what it's going to be like in last days. And the, this list here I read to you seems to fit like a glove. Fear of identity theft. Fear of biological warfare. Fear of cyber terrorism. Fear of widespread civil unrest. Well, 2 Timothy 3.1 says that's what's coming. How do we be courageous in a world which has nothing to do with God? Fear is not only a constant ingredient in our lives, it is an absolutely essential ingredient in life. Imagine, and babies aren't fearful, are they? Watching our little great-granddaughter go along and she's starting to drink out of the dog's bowl. They don't, they, they're, not, they're not fearful at all. Fear comes with growth. Without fear, you wouldn't jump from an aircraft without a parachute or face a grizzly bear without a way of escape or meet your girlfriend's parents for the first time without smartening up. In fact, the Bible condones fear. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It also condemns fear when it says... Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God, 
and the peace of God which transcends it, all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah wrote, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on thee. I want to talk about three things that come from this little story reread of Joseph of Arimathea. And this first one is transformed by association. I wonder what Joseph thought when he knew that the Passover was coming and it was not proper to leave dead bodies on the cross. There were two things that could happen. One, leave it to the officials and they would take the bodies off the cross and throw them into Gehenna, the rubbish dump of the town, and let them rot away. The other option is he could do something about it. But he had to face a man called Pilate. When you look back at the life of Joseph, you read in the scriptures through the four gospels, he was rich, he had become a disciple of Christ, he was a prominent member of the council or the Sanhedrin, he was anticipating the coming kingdom of God, he was a good and upright man, and he had not consented to the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. When you go back into the Old Testament, back into the book of Deuteronomy and Judges and so on, back even into Leviticus, it came a point when Moses was so overtaken with the burden of running the nation that God said, Moses, pick out 70 men, good men, upright men, and they can be those who will assist you in running the nation. So with those 70 plus one, Moses, there were 71 people who later on in history became what we know today as the Sanhedrin, or in Christ's time, the Supreme Court. It was overruled by the high priest, and there were members of high standing in the Sanhedrin. Amongst them was two men. One was Nicodemus. The other was Joseph from the little town of Arimathea. I don't know how it happened, but Somewhere in the discourse in the Supreme Court from time to time, toing and froing arguments were going on, and somewhere maybe Nicodemus said something that lit a light or resonated with Joseph. I wonder if Joseph looked across. I wonder if Joseph then said something, and Nicodemus thought of agreed with it, and they looked, and eventually the two of them got together somewhere, maybe in an ante room of the temple. And Nicodemus maybe said, Joseph, I met Jesus once at night time. I was too afraid to meet him in the middle of the day. And I met Jesus at night time and he was explaining to me about being born again by the Spirit of God. And I think there is something in this. This Jesus, this carpenter, I believe is the Son of God. I wonder if they ever high-handed in those days, but... Joseph said, Nicodemus, so do I. And these two men formed a bond, formed an association, and they gained courage by that association. Let me reiterate or reinforce what Robin spoke a little while ago about, and that is our home groups. Meet with people who love the Saviour. Once you start divorcing yourself and becoming finding greater friends than those who love Christ, your courage will wane. 
I'm sure that those two men met often. I don't know this, the Bible doesn't say. I'm sure they met often from time to time. And they bolstered each other, and they backed each other. And they formed a united togetherness, a devotedness, and a camaraderie born of the fact that whilst they were council members, they were also members of a greater council, that overseen by God himself. But another story, what turned a cavalier, sword-wielding companion of Christ into a rabbit caught in the headlights time of individual who only moments after cutting off the high priest's ear, he wavered before a young lass who said, aren't you one of his? And eventually Peter came to the time when he said, with oaths and curses, will you leave me alone? Will you get out of my face? I know nothing about Jesus. And the rooster crowed. What changed Peter? The Bible tells us in John that John let him in to the inner courtyard where he denied Christ. The Bible doesn't record whether John stayed with him. We don't know. And I wonder whether it was the aloneness that Peter felt that caused him to say, I'm by myself here. I'm not going to stick up for the master. I don't know him. Matthew paints a rather poignant moment when he writes, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Make those who love Christ your dearest friends. The writer to the Hebrews wrote these words, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting of yourselves together. So often we hear people talking that, I'm a bit tired of this church or that church. The colours of the curtain aren't quite right or the cup of tea is Earl Grey instead of whatever. And people seem to leave churches and start to go out and I don't need to be in church to be a follower of Christ. You'll lose your fire. You'll lose your warmth. You'll lose your love. Stay close to those who love Christ. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Make those who love Christ your dearest friends. Courage transforms us when we make that inspirational step of associating ourselves with those who love Jesus. My second point is we are transformed by identification. This old man can't read that. Is that what's up here? Oh, great. I wonder too whether Joseph and Nicodemus came together into the council room when they were celebrating after Jesus was hung upon a cross. All the raucous laughter and the fun together. We've done it. We've got rid of the meddlesome carpenter. They slapped each other on the back. A job well done. If it had been known then that two of their characters, two of their members, were going to bury the body of Jesus and give him a decent burial, I wonder what would have happened. The moment Nicodemus and Joseph decided to go to Pilate, 
It was a personal crossroads in their association with the carpenter. Joseph and Nicodemus would have paid a high price for the respect they showed the corpse of Christ. Bonds of friendship with their fellow members would have been broken. The old boy network would have been severed. The Sanhedrin was a powerful, powerful body. But it wasn't all powerful, for there was another man in Jerusalem at that time, and he was more powerful, for he represented Rome. He dictated, and he alone dictated the events that transpired on top of that mountain called Golgotha. He alone could act as a legitimate judiciary in Palestine. He alone could make decisions that were final and binding, not the Sanhedrin. He alone could release prisoners, as was the custom at the Feast of Passover. He alone could pronounce the death penalty and dictate that that death should be way of circumcision by crucifixion or by any other means, for they did all of that. He alone could dictate that death there should be by placing people upon a cross. He could consent to the final brutal act to hasten death by breaking legs. He alone could release the corpses for disposal or burial. And then the events that transpired between Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane and his trial before Pilate, there had been clashes between the Sanhedrin and Pilate himself. When Pilate came out onto Gabbatha, which is the great platform for which he gave his pronouncement, he said, I find him not guilty. The Sanhedrin said he is guilty. Pilate said he's not guilty sufficiently to crucify him. They said, yes, he is guilty enough to crucify him. Pilate said, well, I will, I've got power to release. I'll release Jesus. No, you won't. We want Barabbas. Then Pilate said, well, okay, take him and crucify him. And then he got his engraver to make a sign, king of the Jews. And they said, it, it, that's not the right title. He says he's the king of the Jews. And now Pilate started to get a little bit annoyed. He said, what I've written, I've written. And I sort of read underneath all that. Pilate's saying, I'm fed up with you guys. What I have written, I have written. Get on with it. And I can imagine Pilate going back into his study, if he had one, shutting the door and mopping his brow. What in the world's going on here? The Sanhedrin think they're in control. They're not. I am. And then a knock on the door. His secretary, if he had one, or his or her, I don't know which, around the door, Pilate, Sorry, two members of the Sanhedrin want on. Oh, no. Who's it this time? There's only two of them. They want to have a word with you. That wasn't the Sanhedrin. That's the doorbell. Pilate, two people from the Sanhedrin want to see you. I can imagine Pilate saying, for goodness sake, when will they leave me alone? Bring them in. What do they want? Nicodemus and Joseph said, can we please have the body of Jesus? And the word is they begged him. It's a very strong word. We need to borrow, uh, to, to bury Jesus. From this point on, there was no going back. 
And that is why Jesus spoke these words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Courage transforms us when we take the irreversible step of identifying ourselves with Jesus. Ruth and I are absolutely thrilled that our little granddaughter, Janelle's daughter, second daughter, Shalice, has said, I'm going to be baptised. Is there any of you here who've never been baptised? That is one way of saying, I'm his. I remember explaining it to some of my grandkids and I took off my wedding ring and I laid it on the table and I said, baptism is a bit like this. I said, that ring says, Ruth is mine and I am hers. And baptism is saying simply that, I'm Christ's and Christ is mine and I want to say it publicly. And if Russian soldiers come into my bedroom and say, if you want to walk out, I'm not walking out. I'm one of his. Association, identification, finally, transformed by anticipation. Tucked away in a prominent place in our Lord's instruction on the mountainside, he said, pray this prayer, our Father, which is in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come. I've got a little note down here. As you push up an age, the pull of heaven seems stronger and stronger. And it does for me. I don't want to leave people. I don't want to leave my wife and family. But the pull of heaven sounds very strong or seems very strong. I've said many times before that once you cross three score years and ten, you move into the departure lounge. <laughs> the flight hasn't been called, but I'm waiting to hear its bell. When the, when the uh, disciples gathered together after Christ had risen, and they were on the top of the Mount of Olives and Christ was about to go home, and the disciples were excited and they said, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Christ said, you're not to know the times. That's not the issue. You get out because the kingdom of God is going to be extended worldwide. And that's the important issue. Luke wrote about Joseph this way. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to the decision and the action to give Jesus over for crucifixion. But he was looking for and waiting for the kingdom of God. Mark records the same thing. A few weeks ago, I was handed five copies of the magazine, Israel, My Rock. Well, who gave that to me? Where is he? Thank you. It was, what a beautiful lot of magazine. One of them was entitled, it's the one dated January, February 18. Whatever happened to the rapture? And it started to write and go into a whole theme of things about it's something we don't ever hear about again. And that distresses me. The most important and the powerful eight words in the whole of the Bible. Well, this is a silly thing to say. But some of the, some of the words I love more than any is this. If 
I go, I will come again. And if you don't believe that, courage won't be yours for very long. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You want to get your Bible, maybe every Sunday morning, before you get out of bed or just after, and read First Thessalonians 4. It goes like this. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another these words. I like that. Christ is coming back. People almost scoff about you. I've heard someone who doesn't love Christ scoffingly say, you're as slow as the second coming of Christ. But he is coming back. In his book simply called Eternity, Joseph Stowell, one time head of um, Moody Bible Institute, wrote these words, life is most disappointing, most despairing, when it is lived as though this world is all we have. Questions have few answers, and crises become all-consuming. Thankfully, this is not the only world. Christ connects us to the eternal world to come and provides for us an eternally redeemed world within. This present world makes sense only when we live here in the light of that other world. Courage transforms us when we anticipate the sheer joy of the personal return of Jesus. So Joseph and Nicodemus, two men who lived and breathed the Sanhedrin, who saw the hatred and the despising that went on of this meddlesome carpenter. They did not consent to his death. And they became courageous because one, they were associated. Two, they clearly identified themselves when they approached Pilate. And thirdly, they were looking for something beyond here. Courage does not spell the end of trials, but rather the means by which we deal with them. We must all pass through the valley, but those who are conquerors, but they are conquerors who live in the realisation that we tread it with prospect, yea, though I walk through. We tread it with a person, you are with me. We tread it with protection, your rod and staff, they comfort me. We will still know hardship in this life, but be courageous, Christ is coming back. And when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Listen to these words. Grow greater, he sendeth more 
strength when the labors increase to added afflictions he added his mercy to multiply trials his multiplied